Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you, Lord. We love you. Thank you for first loving us. Thank you for this honor of declaring your word, Lord. What a privilege. And I pray, Lord, that I will be faithful in your word, Lord, your scriptures, Lord, as I have studied it um, to process and also to share with my brothers and my sisters. I pray for hearts also this evening, um, made ready by the Holy Spirit, that it will be hearts ready to receive all that you have for them this evening. And I pray you will stir us, you will convict us, Lord, you will provoke us, Lord, and even comfort us and love us even through this declaration of your word. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going through a teaching that dives deep, more deeply into the message of John the Baptist. And you know, across these seven weeks, uh, we will be exploring the different themes of this fiery preacher. And you know that in the past two weeks or three weeks, you know, it has not been easy because the topics have been quite challenging. I pray that it has been helpful for you. Um, it may also be a kind of a reminder, and for some, it will cause you to dig more deeply into some of these things that we sometimes take for granted. But this evening, let's read from Matthew chapter 3 again, and we will read from verses 7 to 10. Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 to 10. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire." The title for this evening's teaching is Stones to Sons. And quite obviously, we'll be looking at stones. And throughout the Bible, stones with the many references, there can be positive images as well as negative images. But as we have seen from this passage, we're really zooming in into a few things. And I want you to consider these three questions tonight as we go through this passage. Who is your father? The second question is, what is your faith based on? And thirdly, is your faith bringing forth fruit? Did you get those three points? I want you to consider the word father and then understand faith. And then the product, which is expected, fruit. But let's start with some background study of two groups of people. John saw them coming to the baptism, and he saw the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So it's important for us to know a little bit about this, these groups of people because we will encounter them throughout the Gospel of Matthew. Who were the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Some history for you, that after the Babylonian captivity, when they came back from exile, in the post-exilic period, two broad groups were sort of uh, emerged from their religious system. 
One was called the Zadokim, and out of the Zadokim comes the Sadducees and the Kairites. The other group is called the Hasidim. And the translations you can see, the Zadokim actually means the righteous ones, from obviously the word Zadok, the line of the priesthood. The Hasidim are the people who consider themselves separated, and from there two groups emerged. One would be the Pharisees, and the other, the Essenes. Now, it is widely suggested that John the Baptist would have come from the group called the Essenes because they separated themselves and lived in the caves and the Dead Sea Scrolls when they found, you know, these were the people, um, the Qumran group, in the Essenes group. By the time it came to the uh, first century, the time of Jesus, we are left with three groups, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, as well as the Essenes. The Pharisees were mostly middle-class businessmen, and they mingled more with the common folk. They were more in touch with the community. But because of their commitment to keeping the law, they considered themselves much, much holier than the average folk. They would wear special garments to distinguish themselves. And I know that many times when we use the word Pharisee, we tend to think very negatively of this group. But if you be fair to them, they really wanted to honour God, they wanted to keep the word of God, they were zealous for the law and, for the, and of the traditions. Right? So there are good Pharisees, but um, sadly, whenever we talk about Pharisees, we would think of the word hypocrites. The Sadducees, on the other hand, they were a small party with limited influence, but they had priestly connections. They were men of position and they were men of wealth. They were also the aristocrats of that time. As such, they were considered the upper class, and so they were like the top-notch people, not very in touch with the rest of the people. And in the Sanhedrin, the spiritual leadership or the religious leadership of those days, in the Sanhedrin, they actually had more seats than the Pharisees. But because the Pharisees were more in touch with the people, the Sadducees will listen to the Pharisees a little bit more in the way that they will make the decisions. And so we can see from the Sadducees that they are worldly-minded, politically motivated, and not much interest in religion or religious stuff. Some doctrinal differences between these two groups. The Pharisees would focus on the written law as well as the tradition of the rabbis. So they call this the written as well as the oral law. Meaning to say, whatever God gave to Moses, written down, Torah, that's good. At the same time, traditionally as they passed down the interpretations from rabbi to rabbi, they also considered that as the inspired word of God. So whenever you encounter the Pharisees, you will see that there's always a challenge concerning tradition. This is what we used to do. This is how we used to do it. The Sadducees only would stick to the written law. They didn't care too much about the tradition. The next thing is that the Pharisees would acknowledge God's sovereignty as well as the moral decisions of men. So they can see that they agree that whatever you do, there's a consequence and yet God is sovereign over all things. For the Sadducees, they are quite self-sufficient, 
and like, you know, they'll do whatever need to do. God is not really involved in the picture. You make your own decisions and you suffer the consequences. The Pharisees also believed in resurrection. And because there's an afterlife, therefore there will be rewards and there will be punishment. But for the Sadducees, they denied any afterlife. And they hold to this understanding that the soul would perish at death. And so if it ends then, then there's no penalty or no reward after that. The Pharisees believe in the spiritual world. They acknowledge angels and demons. But for the Sadducees, they did not believe that. Isn't it quite interesting? Two groups of religious people or religious sects, and they come together quite different, quite extreme. One will hold to the law so closely, and on the other end, the other extreme, you would have the liberals, where they just live life and just enjoy and do whatever they can because there's no afterlife. And although they are different, John addressed them together as if they're one group. You brood of vipers. Right? So, depending on your, whatever your orientation might be, that's not the thing. You know, it's not so much what you believe, it's how you live, right? So, John looks at them and says, look, you brood of vipers. In Matthew 23, 33, 20 chapters after, Jesus would devote this entire chapter, or Matthew devotes an entire chapter, records the words of Jesus using the same words on them. Serpents. Brood of vipers. And he was really very harsh. How can you escape the condemnation of hell? Almost the same warning and the same indictment against them as John the Baptist, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. But no matter how they were different in the way they understood Scripture or held to the law or their views about God, about men, they rested in their security having Abraham as their father. So as we look at them, I think we can first, very early at this point, even draw some warning points. That by the time it came to Jesus, the entire Judaistic system became institutionalized. They all had good intentions. They wanted to keep to the law. Why? Because it was their disobedience to the law that took them out of the land in the first place. And so when they came back from the exile, they took one decision from Ezra's point all the way down. It says, we will keep the law. We are not going to get kicked out of the land anymore. And they swung to the other extreme and they institutionalized the entire thing. And since we're talking about stones and John makes a reference to stones in a very, very short while, we can see that in the hearts of these people, they had hearts of stone. Religion and institutionalization can do that to us. Institutional thinking can both harden and deaden our hearts. It can become cold, it can become rigid, and at times, just like stones, it can even trip you. Jesus encountered again this group when he entered Jerusalem, many chapters down. And I call it sanctified sarcasm. Remember that they were praising Jesus as he entered Jerusalem? And the Pharisees were going, oh, you know, how can your disciples be doing this kind of stuff? 
And Jesus replies, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. It's almost like a parallel of John, right? John is saying, look, come on, if you don't change the way, and you're talking about Abraham as your father, God can raise children from these stones. You don't realize how cold and how dead you have become. But if God requires it, He can turn the stones around. Quite a few verses after that, we see a prophetic removal and replacement of dead stones. Jesus prophesies and says that very, very soon, the enemy will come. They'll run you over. They will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. See, institutionalization or religion can do this to us. You know, we look around the world and we see many of these quaint stone church buildings still standing. Of course, we know where to find most of these, right? Some of you just came back from Europe. And if you travel around Europe, you have large stone cathedrals, churches, and so on. I mean, these are beautiful buildings. They are monuments. But many of them are literally stone cold. I'm not saying that God's presence is no longer upon the country or the nation per se. All I'm saying is that we must guard against this happening to us in an institution called the church. And this is what happened to Judaism at that point in time. It became cold, it became rigid, it became harsh, and it was dead. My question for us is, have we also been institutionalized without realizing it? There's every possibility because it doesn't come upon you overnight. But over the years, you do things in a certain way. You will sing songs in a certain way. You will perform certain duties in a certain way. And it all starts out right, but it can end up dead and cold. So let's go to the very first question. Who is your father? Now to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all the Jews at that point in time, this was their declaration. Oh, we have Abraham as our father. I mean, they didn't have to say it. They didn't have to declare it. John the Baptist knew immediately because he is a Jew. He understands. And so the moment he said, you know, you better bear fruits worthy of repentance, he could almost hear the... the, the they're, they're uh, uh, shouting back against him and saying, what do you mean? You know, what do you mean by fleeing from the wrath to come? We have Abraham as our father. They were relying on their heritage. They were relying on tradition, on their religion, and they rested on their physical lineage that led back all the way through to Abraham. You know, in Singapore, we might say it in a different way. You know, when someone cuts in your path, have you, you know, when you're driving and someone either drives really slowly, okay, you've never experienced that before, right? What, we, what do we normally say to them? Well, you think this is your grandfather's road, huh? So if your grandfather owns this road, huh, then everything you can do, huh? you can never go wrong. See, this is the singlish way of saying things, right? 
That's how the Jews felt about Abraham. And of course, through Scripture, we see this. And I've taken one passage from Genesis chapter 17, verses 7 and 8 that says, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. To the Jews, just mention Abraham. No problem, because it says that your descendants after you. Oh, we are the descendants. It's everlasting. So it's snapshot. Don't have to worry. Abraham, it's our father. Do you know Jesus had to address the same problems with the Jews? If you look in your Bibles, it's a huge long passage in John chapter 8, verses 13 to 59. We won't read the entire passage, but it was the same problem. The Pharisees were questioning the identity and the authority of Jesus. And Jesus, in answering and you know, presenting his position... Some of the Jews, it was it's recorded in John chapter 8, believed him. But the discussion doesn't end there. Jesus continues to talk to the Jews who believe him. And he says, okay, if you believe me, then abide in my word, be my, be my disciples, and the truth will set you free. And they didn't take that too nicely. They said, no, we are Abraham's descendants. What do you mean set free? We've never been under any bondage. And Jesus clarifies this. No, 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 no. You are bound by sin. That's what he's trying to tell you. And then he goes on and he explains again. He says, now, but you seek to kill me. If you say Abraham is your father, then you would do what Abraham would do. But instead, you are seeking to kill me. If you understand who your father is, then you will do what you have seen with your father. Then they say again, oh, but Abraham is our father. It's like when you have no answer, just answer like this. Abraham is our father. Then Jesus goes on to explain, see, I've told you the truth which I heard from God. Oh, really? So the Jews looked at him and said, but we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. In other words, Jesus, who are you to talk to me about father? Who's yours? Right? Because they were questioning the birth of this man called Jesus. Then Jesus gets a little bit too close for them. Oh, you are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. <laughs> not nice. Now, since you mentioned devil, Jesus, do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan? Oh, now no, no, you're not even a Jew. You are half a Jew. You are a Samaritan and you have a demon since you said that we are of the devil. I do not have a demon, Jesus answers, but I honor my Father. If anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Now what do they say? Okay, now we really know you have a demon. I mean, for someone who can talk like this, huh? obviously you are out of this world. You have a demon. So Jesus says, look, your, Ab your father Abraham. Now, you want to talk about Abraham? Let me talk about your father. 
Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. So if you are the descendants of Abraham, you would see my day and I'm standing before you. You would be glad too. Amen? And he goes, you're not yet 50 years old and have you seen Abraham? And what was Jesus' answer? Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham, I was. Now that was the last straw for them. After that, they picked up stones and they were going to stone him. You see, this was the position of the Jews in those days. To them, Abraham was everything. They were very convicted. I mean, you've got to give it to them. They were so convinced. They were convicted and they would use Abraham as if it's their get-out-of-jail card. Any problem, my father is Abraham. Anything wrong, my father is Abraham. Don't know the answer, my father is Abraham. Do you know in the church today, we, we sometimes presume on certain statements also. What is our get-out-of-jail card? Sometimes in the church, we could say any of these ones, right? I prayed a sinner's prayer, so everything's going to be cool. Really? I tithe, you know, so you can't tell me what to do. I was born to a Christian family, so what does it mean? <laughs> My parents are church leaders. Well, good for you. I'm a long-time member of this church. Some people phrase it differently. I'm like the furniture now. I'm very active in church. All right, that's nice. I say grace before every meal. At least you pray. God understands. What do we use as our get-out-of-jail card? We, we, we don't want to admit this, but sometimes we can be like the Pharisees and Sadducees too. We've been in the church long enough or we understand Christianity long enough. We, we can be hardened. Now, to us, we may think we are rock solid and convicted. But we could be like stones, lifeless also. And the first point I want us to ponder when we ask about who is our father. As I look at this passage, I, this line came up to me. It's one thing to declare the father. It's another to live as the father's children. Would you agree with that? See, that was, that was Jesus' point to the to the Jews. You say you are Abraham's descendants. Abraham is your father. Now, if he's your father, you would do as your father. Now, we know our position and we can declare God as our father. But it's one thing to declare the father and we as sons and daughters of the Most High and that's the most privileged position. My question is, are we living as the father's children? Because you will see that once we get into the gospel proper and Jesus begins to preach and He begins to declare, He mentions the Father's will many times. Are you about the Father's will? Are you doing the Father's will? See, today there's a big recovery and that's wonderful that you know, we are no longer slaves, we are sons and that's beautiful. But after we realize we are sons and we are daughters of God, will we do the Father's will? It's one thing to declare the Father. It's another to live as the Father's children.
What is your faith based on? As the Jews base their faith in Abraham, we are told that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And so what faith is this? What is our faith based on? Who is our faith based on? From this passage in Genesis chapter 17, the Jews' faith is based on their promise or God's promise to Abraham and themselves being Abraham's descendants. And they held on tightly to this. But might I suggest to you that through the years, although they declare, they declare Abraham as their father, their faith might have shifted and now is based on a system and a religion and a heritage more than anything else. Paul clarifies later on in Galatians. He says, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. Now Paul says he does not say, And to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed who is Christ. Well, this must have really turned the tables for all of them. Where previously they were saying, look, it's, it's the promise was made to Abraham and to his descendants. We are the descendants. Paul comes onto the scene now and he says, look, this is the right way to interpret it. I used to think it was this way. Now by revelation, it's shown to me that it's given to Abraham and his seed, not to his seeds. And who is the seed? He is the Christ. It is the Messiah. When the Messiah comes, the promises will be fulfilled in the Messiah. It's not in the system. It's not in the religion. It's not in your tradition. It is in the Messiah, in Christ. At this point, allow me just to do a quick revision. And I know that this will be helpful for us. Let's look at Abraham. Abraham is someone from Ur of the Chaldees and God calls him one day, appears to him and gives him a promise. Everybody knows that. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. So God says, Abraham, this is what you must do. You go, get out of the country and I'll make your name great. I'll bless you and you will be a blessing. In you, all nations will be blessed. After that, Abraham as Isaac. Isaac is called the child of the promise because without a child, this promise cannot be fulfilled. So in some way, the promise was fulfilled in this person first, but it's going to go right through. Abraham is asked to sacrifice Isaac. And after he does that, or at least lifts up his hand about to kill Isaac, God says, okay, now I know that you fear me. So he says, by myself, I swear. So God confirms the promise by an oath. Now, does God need to confirm a promise? No, because if He says it, it's done. He will keep His word. But He comes down to our level, tells Abraham, I swear upon my own name, because there's no one higher that I can swear on. And He confirms it. Now, collectively, we call it the two by two immutable things. That's in Hebrews chapter 6 and verses 17 to 18. He confirms this promise by an oath, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Can you see? Did he say descendants? 
It doesn't. Abraham, Isaac, after that comes Jacob, that becomes Israel. And through Israel, we know that they have descendants of Abraham. Seventy people, they went into Egypt. They get stuck there. 430 years later, God takes them out. Thank God for Moses. And God gives the covenant at Mount Sinai, where we call the Sinaitic Covenant, or today we refer to it as the Old Covenant. It is given in tablets of stone. Many times we look at this and we say, this is the law. When I say the word law, do you feel good or feel lousy? We tend to feel lousy, right? But you've got to read scripture because in Romans it says the law is holy, it is just, and it is good. Law is there to reveal righteousness as well as sin. You cannot divide these two things, two words. The law is there to reveal it's good, it's holy, it is just. And many times when we hear this word law, we tend to continue with one phrase, the law kills. But if you read your text again, it actually says that the law is good. How can something good kill? Doesn't make sense, right? But it goes on to explain to us, sin takes advantage of the law, deceives us, and kills us. So what is it that kills? Sin is the one that kills, not the law. Amen? Right? Sin takes advantage of the law because the law will reveal sin. And in that sin has dominion through the law and kills. Because no one can keep it. But we are told that the law was given as a tutor that would train towards someone who would come. The objective of the law also is that as you would obey the law, God requires fruitfulness through the law as God's people. This is where John the Baptist steps in. So if you look at the Pharisees and the Sadducees and John encountering the religious system of his day, you find that, you know, this is their idea. The entire law is there, the entire system is there. We're keeping it. How can you tell us that we are bad? But they're keeping it, teaching it, but they're not living it, and there's no fruit to show for it. We thank God that we are told that the law was added because of transgression till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. So this law was given, added to this promise. If you read Galatians, it's a beautiful book. The adding of the law does not cancel the promise. It still stands. It was added for a while until the seed should come. So when the seed arrives, the law gives way to the Messiah, the Christ. But this scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believed. Let me paraphrase this for you. The law is given, holds the people, confines them under sin, so that when the Messiah comes, this promise will be given to all if you believe and have faith in the Messiah. 
And so John points to Jesus. His ministry always points to the Christ. And we see that the entire line is now connected. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. The law was added because of transgression till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. So the promise was given to Abraham, but it will be given over to the seed that all who have faith in this seed called Jesus the Christ will also receive the same promise. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus then mediates a new covenant cancelling the old covenant, but bringing into fruition the promise. And we see in the new covenant, we now have the blessings of Abraham. It is no longer written on tablets of stone. It is written upon the tablets of our hearts. We no longer struggle to earn righteousness. But the moment we believe in Christ, by faith, Righteousness is placed upon us, imputed. We have been freed from the dominion of sin. Sin has no more hold upon us because we have died in Christ, we have died to the law, and we have raised, been raised a new creation. Today we are led by the Spirit of the law. We once were dead, but now we've been made alive. And that's why... John says, look, God can raise up children from these stones. And from these stones that are all dead, they're all cold, they're all lifeless, in Christ, we are now living stones. Amen? Stones under the law used to be implements of death. That if you break this law to the highest degree, they will take you out and they will stone you. But today, we are instruments of life. We are no longer slaves to sin, but the Spirit has been given to us that we are adopted as sons of God. We have been enabled by the Holy Spirit for obedience and again, for the purpose of fruitfulness. Can you see? That there are many parallels, but today we have a new enablement. See, Ezekiel prophesied about this. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And listen to this. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Now what does that mean? That literally means my spirit will be within you so that you can live out the law. Does it surprise you? You see, the law reveals the, 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 the righteousness of God. The law reveals the standard of God. That's the expression of what it means to live as one who belongs to God. And so today we say, oh, we're no longer under the law. Let's remove that totally. Now, how do we live? Oh, we live by the Spirit. How does the Spirit guide us? Oh, um, He just tells me I just do law. I mean, that sounds right. But do you know, while you are learning that, what do you read? You read the Bible. You read the law. But you don't get into the letter of the law because now you are going to understand the Spirit of the law. 
Which law is this? It is the law that comes from God. See, friends, I don't want you to hate the law per se. Because today we are looking at the law and we say, look, if, I, if we only look at the law, the law kills. The law reveals the heart of God. We don't try to lift the law in the old way by our own strength. Today, we have the Holy Spirit to guide us and enable us so that we can walk in my statutes and we can keep my judgments that we may do them. It's very different. I hope you're catching this. I'm not bringing you back into Old Covenant. I'm not bringing you back into a legalism. That is not my point. Because the Bible is clear. It says that the whole law is summed up in this one word called love. That's not wrong. I tell you what the problem we have today. We redefine love. If you redefine love, you redefine the entire law. See the big problem down here? So we have to understand what this law is all about. So that when we understand the spirit of the law, then we are no longer under the bondage of sin, under the curse of the law, because Christ has removed us from that. We live in the liberty of the law, but move in the spirit of the law, enabled to love, which is the expression of the entire law. See, friends, my point in showing this to you is, I want, you, I want to go back to Abraham, because that's where it starts. It's recorded in the Bible that Abraham believed and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And so we understand that righteousness comes not by works, but it is by faith. But years later, God would test this faith and says, well, you believe in me? You believe the promise? Sacrifice your son. He had to work at it. Can you see this? His faith had to be worked out. And so faith is not just I'm believing and I don't do anything anymore. That's why James picks up from this theme. He says, yes, Abraham was not only justified by faith, he was after that justified by works. Right? That will really boggle you if you're, if, you, if you're feeling tired tonight and you can't process that. He was justified by faith, but the genuineness of the faith is expressed through the works he would do. And later on, God confirms by oath, saying, not only in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, but he gives a reason. Because. Because you believed? Because you have obeyed my voice. See, my dear friends, today we talk about faith, just believe, don't do. You can't do anything for your salvation. Let me tell you this again. You can't do anything to make yourself more righteous in Christ. Because when we believe, we are in right standing with the Lord. But the Lord will test the genuineness of our faith. That if you say you really believe, show me. Obey me. If I were to say this, would you believe me enough to do it? Now, we can fail, we can trip, we can fall. And that's where His grace comes in beautifully every time for us. Because our position with Him is secure. Amen? What is your faith based on, friends? If your faith is based on faith, you've got a problem. If your faith is based on a teaching, you also have a problem. If your faith is based on a system or a religion or a heritage or, or some, something that you are used to, that's a problem. Your faith is in Christ 
but understanding who he is. Now Christ says, will you live for me? Comes back to obedience and he's looking for fruit. See, is it wonderful that faith turns stones into sons? says, therefore, know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, that's us, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. And then after that, he concludes with this glorious statement. When we believe, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then we all now in Christ, because He is the seed. So if we are in the seed, then we are all Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Isn't that wonderful? So whatever Christ has, we have. Only in Christ. Only in Christ, the Messiah. This is the faith that we declare. And I want us to ponder this point as we answer this question about faith. That truly God is not constrained by dead stones. That if we are not careful, we can also become like dead stones, although we are living stones in Christ. If we, if we become institutionalized and we become churchized, we can become dead. We can go for teaching after teaching after teaching, but there's no obedience and there's no working out of our faith or our salvation, then we are dead. We're as good as dead. But God is not constrained by dead stones. He can raise up living stones anytime for His purposes. Amen? Let's go to the last point. Is your faith then bringing forth fruit? John tells the Pharisees and Sadducees, bear fruits worthy of repentance. This is expected. And I hope you are convinced by now after I'm, I've shown you the scripture, I've taken you through, that this has always been the objective. We are to be fruitful. Israel was referred to always as God's vineyard. And by the time it came to the prophet Isaiah, this was what God had to say to, our, to, to Israel. Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. Do you believe that the seed that's planted in each and every one of us, and we who are in the seed who is Christ, it is the choicest seed? Any problem with the seed? No problem with the seed, right? What's the problem? Are we the right ground? Amen? Do we have good ground? Because the seed is always good. God has done great things for us. By faith, we believe into the promise of Abraham. We've got everything going for us. Actually, we've got no excuse, you know. Everything is there for us. And all the Lord is just saying, stay me, I'm the vine, bear fruit. Israel failed in this mission. And so Jesus, when he spoke about a parable, 
about the wicked vine dressers. You know the story? The, the, the vineyard did not bear fruit. Season after season, it did not. And finally, the, messenger, the, the, the master says, I'll send my son. Surely they will respect my son and treat him better. But they killed the son. And Jesus then said this, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will ground him to powder. See, the kingdom of God is expected to bear fruit. So if you and I are people of the kingdom of God, what do you think is expected of us, friends? Fruit. Is it not so? And so we have to ask ourselves, Lord, I want to bear fruit. Help me. Am I bearing fruit? And usually when we talk about this, the next question will come. What fruit? Eh? What fruit are you expecting? So let me give you some scripture. And I hope that this will be helpful. You can take a photo of this. You can take this down. And you can go back and evaluate. First, in Colossians 1.6, Paul says, This has come to you as is also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit. The truth of the gospel, the word of the truth of the gospel has come to the Colossians and is bringing forth fruit. It's bearing fruit. So the gospel needs to bear fruit in us. The next we see the fruit of holiness, which is Romans chapter 6, verse 22. Paul says, But now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God. Sometimes the Bible is a little bit confusing when you read it in different times, right? First we are told you are no longer slaves, but you are now sons. And that is true. We are no longer slaves to sin or the curse of the law. We are now sons of God. But Paul in this picture says, you're no longer slaves of sin, but now you have a new master. Now, since you have a new master, then I suppose you are a slave. Lah. And he's just using it figuratively, okay? You have not lost your freedom. And so I like to tease people and kid with them to say, are you still slaves? And everyone says, no. I said, well, the Bible says you are. So I give you one verse in 22. You have become slaves of God. You have your fruit to holiness. Now, don't stop there. You have your fruit to holiness and the end, everlasting life. You see, we are expected to be bearing fruit of holiness. Fruit unto holiness. So are you holier today than before? Is your holiness a nice fruit or is it a sour one? Are you separated unto the Lord, which is what holiness means, sanctified? Yet are you morally more sound today than you were previously? Because holiness is taken from this word called whole. Are you more whole today than you were before? Or are you still broken? The next fruit is called the fruit of righteousness. We have been imputed with God's righteousness or Jesus' righteousness. That's the gift of righteousness. And we must always discern between the gift of righteousness and the fruit of righteousness. 
They're two different things. It's gifted to us that we are righteous before the Lord. But you see, that covers us and gives us right standing so that we can approach God anytime. But he says, now because you have that privilege, I want you to grow into that righteousness. That's called the fruit of righteousness. Now, how does he do that for us? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Difficult times, challenges, trials, tribulation. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You want to know how righteous a person is? Give them a difficult time. Yeah. You want to know how righteous a driver you are? Let me cut into your lane. Yeah, you understand what I mean now? In a nice time, praise the Lord, hallelujah. But in a difficult time, will you justify your actions? That's what we do. When in a tough time and we fail and we say, God, you understand it was difficult. I mean, come on, I mean, fail. But it is in that tough time that our righteousness is, or the lack of, is revealed. Will you stand firm and will you not compromise when the going gets tough? That's righteousness. Will you live by God's way regardless of the challenges that come against you? That's called righteousness. See, don't be fooled, friends. Because sometimes today when you want to stand by what you believe in, even Christians will look at you and say, why are you so legalistic? That's not the idea. Legalistic is that if you think by doing that you become holier and better than other people, that's legalism. That you can earn that right. That's legalism. But to live righteously is to live in expectation of the fruit that is to be born. Next one we call the fruit of good works. Paul prays for the church in Colossae that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him. How? Being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of the Lord. See, there's also a teaching that's going around to say that don't try to please God because God is already pleased with you. Have you heard this? Don't do anything. You don't have to do it because He's already pleased. Then cancel this line. Paul says, walk worthy. So that as you walk worthy, you will please the Lord. How? By being fruitful in every good work. How's your good work? How are your assignments? See, you must bear fruit in that. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15. Therefore, by Him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to His name. You want to know how fruitful you are? Carry a recorder with you. What's coming out of your lips? All the time. Whether you are conscious or unconscious. You see that? What's the fruit of your lips? It should be praises to His name and giving thanks unto the Lord, right? Being thankful in all things, in all situations, however challenging, however difficult, 
Or are we complaining and griping and cursing and swearing? Then that's a wrong fruit. And James addresses that in chapter 3. What kind of fruit are you bearing? So when someone listens to you, would it be pleasant to listen to or very trying to have coffee with you? Now, it doesn't mean that you can't pour out your, your challenges, okay? I'm not saying that. I think you understand what I mean. We can all improve in this area. The fruit of our lips. The fruit of wisdom. James chapter 3, verse 17. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. That's a wisdom from above. When you contrast that, you will see it's the wisdom that is earthly and essential and that is demonic. That's what James says. So we have to be careful what kind of a wisdom we are drawing from. And we all need wisdom in our day and age today. How to handle the things and the challenges that come against us, the ideologies, the thinking. Now, Let's be careful because in Christianity, sometimes it can be very earthly in the, doc- in the way we're we are pushing our doctrines. Very sensual, nice feeling. Everything is good, kind. And James says it so clearly. It's demonic. And you will produce that kind of fruit. Selfish, self-centered, you know, pride. It will come out. You can see it. You can see the person. We can say everything correct, but we live totally upside down. You can tell. And if you can't tell about yourself, ask someone. Because usually you can spot someone's fruit faster than you can spot your own. That's why we need accountability and we need honesty with one another. There's a fruit of generosity. Philippians chapter 4, verse 17. Paul says, Not that I seek the gift that comes from you, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. There are two ways you can look at this. One is that this fruit is that if you sow money, which is what they gave to Paul, if you sow finances, then the fruit has to be finances because you don't sow apples and you get oranges. And so I've heard many preachers talk about that. That's fine. But we can look at it symbolically also that if you sow finances, it's up to God how He wants to let the fruit abound to your account. But both ways, you can receive that fruit. The point is not to look for the fruit. The point is to be generous. The last one, of course, which is the most obvious, is the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such, there is no law. If you live like that, nobody's going to arrest you. If you live like that, you know, no one can find any fall against you. If they want to do that, it will be a false witness. Because Jesus lived like that, you see. But they couldn't find anything wrong with him. They had to fabricate something against him. I didn't say that if you live like that, nothing wrong will happen to you. You see that? And this is the fruit of the Spirit. In the same way, we must distinguish the difference between the gift of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit. The gift of the Spirit can be given to us in an instant. By faith, we can receive. But the fruit of the Spirit will take time to develop. 
So don't get too impressed with someone who moves strongly in the gifts. It's entirely by the grace of God. It's not because this person is more matured or this person is a nicer person. Not necessary. It is the fruit of the Spirit that we want to see. And that can only happen over time. I hope this gives you a better idea of the categories of fruit. And they're all very practical. And I really believe that as we live and bear these fruit, so help us God, the rewards we can enjoy are both for now as well as for eternity. You agree? Because if we live with these fruit, we will enjoy the benefits right now, right here. But more importantly, we are laying up for what is to come. And Jesus says, look, you did not choose me, but I chose you that you may go and bear fruit and fruit that will last. The beautiful thing about this kind of fruit is that it will never go rotten. You carry these with you when you meet the Lord. Everything else will cease, right? But this will go on. Praise the Lord. Now at this point, some of you might be looking at, at me and you look at this scripture and say, I cannot make it. This, this is really tough. Let me give you an encouraging statement. If water can be turned into wine by Jesus, stones can bear fruit by the Holy Spirit. Amen to this? You see, you must understand it's not about us. Every time I talk about fruit and we talk about brunch and we talk about bearing fruit, you know, you know, I must remind myself also that there's branches or what we, we don't force fruit. There's no way you and I are going to sit down there and strain and get fruit. No fruit is going to come out. It begins by faith according to His grace that the promise is sure. It will continue by faith according to His grace that the promise is sure. Amen? And we have to look to Jesus and He's given us the Holy Spirit it's the Spirit, you see, it's the fruit of the Spirit. It's the Spirit that changes us from the inside out. It's the Spirit that has been given to us that the, the words of God, His statutes, His ways, His righteousness, His expectations have been written not on tablets of stone, but tablets of our hearts. And our, our challenge is not so much to worry about how I'm going to get food, but it's really to keep ourselves tender before the Lord. Because over time, man, it's so easy to become proud. It's so easy to, to do things the same way and, and hope to get a result. God does not move like that. The principles stay the same. But God is not limited by anything. And so let me ask you again, who is your father? What or who is your faith based on? Is your faith bringing forth fruit? See, by faith in Jesus Christ, the Lord has already turned stones into sons and daughters. But let me ask ourselves as we close, what kind of stones are we? May we not become institutionalized, God forbid. Can we promise one another to, to point it out to each other? Can we be accountable 
so that we can remain soft, that we don't become cold and hard and harsh and proud and stumble others. Really, people who come into a community, they can, they can spot a, a stone is dead or living anytime. We cannot wayang. And can we be honest that we perhaps at times we have been stumbling rocks and stones to the people amongst ourselves and even to those outside. And worse yet, we might have become implements of death when we bring condemnation upon people. No more. What kind of stones are we? We were once dead in our sins, but now alive to God. We are recipients of the promise and the blessings of Abraham by faith through Jesus Christ. And in Christ, we are now sons and daughters of God, co-heirs with Jesus Christ. That as we declare the Father, we will live as the Father's children. We are no longer dead stones. We are living stones with Jesus as the cornerstone. And we take reference from Him and Him alone. We are not a temple in Jerusalem that's rigid and dead, but we are a holy temple being built together for a dwelling place of God in our midst by the Holy Spirit. And the greatest miracle is that we are stones empowered and enabled by the Holy Spirit to bear fruit that will last. And when people partake of this fruit, it will be juicy, it will be sweet, it will be refreshing. And they will say, taste and see that the Lord is good. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we give you praise, Lord. That, Lord, all you require is for us to believe in your Son, Jesus Christ. He is the seed that was to come, Lord. He is the seed that the promise was made for and that in Him the promise was fulfilled. And so, Lord, when we believe, Lord, in Him, we are now the seed of Abraham and heirs according to the promise. Not because of how good we are or how wonderful we can uh, present things, but because of what Jesus has done upon the cross for us. We thank you we're no longer under the old covenant, Lord. Lord, that the the law that once, you know, showed up the sin and, and so on, that sin took advantage of to deceive and to kill us, Lord, that's done away with now, Lord. But Lord, today we live by your Holy Spirit, still living according to your ways, according to your righteousness, according to the law of Christ, which is love, according to the law of the Spirit, O God, but nonetheless, still your law, your statutes and your judgments. And Lord, let not faith be just a mental assent to agree with these things. But Lord, as Abraham lived out and worked out his faith, willing to sacrifice Isaac because he believed in you. Let our faith, Lord, also be faith that is alive, that will be expressed through the works that we do, through obedience. And that, Lord, may we bear fruit, Lord, that will be a blessing to the people around us. Fruits that will last, that one day when we stand before you, Lord, we give account. This is the harvest, O Lord. This is the harvest. And so thank you, Lord, for my brothers and sisters that together we're going to hold each other accountable. We're going to hold our hands. We're going to encourage one another in the Lord, not to bring condemnation, but Lord, to walk with each other, even as we see the day approaching. And so we thank you for this time of learning. 
this time of fellowshipping in your word as we worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.